When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today I have a brand new edit of my really excellent interview with Phoebe Bridgers. Phoebe is bigger than ever right now, and in this interview she talks about her whole career, about making what's still her most recent album, Punisher, and a whole lot more. Let's jump straight into that interview. When the speed kicks in, The funny thing is your album is called Punisher because you're playing on a term about people who gush too much at artists at the merch table. And I think people have been doing that to you in interviews and I'm the latest. So sorry about that. But tell me about that term for people who don't know it. Yeah, well, in the simplest terms, I think a Punisher is just somebody who doesn't know that they're being perceived as exhausting. Like one time I was cornered at a party. I could literally see my friends in the background But this person I hadn't seen since I was like a teenager cornered me to talk about if Verizon or AT&T was better and talking about her own personal experience. Like I wasn't involved in the conversation at all. I think that's key. I love gushy fans. I look out in the crowd and it's predominantly queer, young, femme kids. They'll be like, I made you a friendship bracelet. That is not what I'm talking about. That is awesome. What I'm talking about is like, oh, there's also a fan splainer, which is one of my favorites because it'll be like you're playing in Florida and they're and they say they come up to you and they're like, I was going to buy tickets for Kalamazoo because I was going to be there. But then I bought <laughs> tickets for here. And I, I actually saw you last night on the TV when you played Seth Meyers. And now I'm at this show and the sound wasn't that great. But, and it makes me wonder if I should have gone to Kalamazoo. Like, they're just not, they're like kind of insulting you the whole time. And they're just taking you through their personal experience with you. Like, you're not, you don't have any new information whatsoever. That's great. The other thing is you write about Elliot Smith and a slight hint that you would be the Punisher if you met Elliot Smith. Um, It's not surprising You can hear the kinship in your music, but what is it about him that you respond to uh, most deeply? It's tons of stuff. It's like, it got me early for one thing. Like, I don't look at Elliot's music with the same like exacting bitchiness as I do a lot of music nowadays. Like, it got me at a time where I had never heard any music like that before. And so it still affects me in that way. Like when I listen to lyrics and stuff, there are some Elliot lyrics where I'm like, no other artist could get away with that. It's like so sincere or so emo. And I think just like the whole character of him is also very appealing to me. And his, like the actual music music itself sounds like the Beatles or something. Like it's like an orchestra that he has managed to do like you know, on a four track. So yeah, I love everything about it, but also like the character of him is so solidified for everybody. And I think that's another very easy way to get punished is if everybody has like a preconceived notion of what you're going to be like and thinks that they know how to like relate to you. So, so for example, for me, 
I'll often get punished with like, I'm so depressed and like my depression medication, uh, isn't kicking in today. So like I'm at your show. Ha ha ha. And I'm like, that's, that sucks. You know, (laughs) it sucks that people think that that's like the way I speak. (laughs) You have a fascinating relationship, I would say to your own sadness. You just launched a label called Satisfactory. And I mean, you know, it's a very real thing. And like you said, it sucks to experience as a human being. And yet there's a there's a certain knowingness in your even in your tweets and the way you talk about it and sometimes the way you write about it in this idea of writing about sadness and the way you relate to it. How how do you kind of see all that? Well, I think it's very funny. I think sadness is very funny. Depression is funny to me because it's the least singular thing on earth. Like it's the human experience, uh, unless you're an idiot. It's the human experience. And I think most people aren't idiots and experience some form of sadness or depression. But when you are really depressed, you're like, oh, God, why did you forsake me? It's like, it's everybody. So I think taking it a little bit less seriously has always been funny to me. And I, and I like comedians and musicians who do that, which is funny because Elliot kind of did take it really seriously. He seems like a goofball in real life, which I appreciate. But yeah, Connor Oberst, great example. You could say that he's really self-serious in his songs, but I feel like most of his lyrics are actually inside jokes, I've come to learn, where he's just messing with one of his friends. I like that. It's kind of an extraordinary thing to, while you grew up idolizing Elliot Smith, you did not get to (laughs) form a group with him. And you did with Connor Oberst, who, who meant a ton to you. I love that Better Oblivion Community Center album. It was quiet early one morning, hit me without warning, I went to hear the general speak. And I was going to ask what you learned from him in the process, but I'd rather ask, what do you think he learned from you in the process? <laughs> um, what did he learn from me? I probably have a really funny answer to this question, but I'm trying to be sincere. You can do both answers. Yeah, well, he definitely, I feel like I do more press than him less bitterly and being in a band together instead of leaning towards his side of that i think we lean towards my side so he was doing a lot more interviews i think than normal (laughs) um and that was really fun and then let's see i can only think of stuff i learned from him like how to jump off a kick drum and then what else uh oat milk lattes are delicious like on our press trip in in europe i was getting them every day and then uh at a certain point he was just like yeah, yeah, I'll have one of those. He's like a black coffee guy. Um, he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'll do, I'll do an oat milk latte today. When he's credited with helping with writing on like, I think there's like three songs on this album. What does that end up really meaning? It seems like you probably have an almost finished song and you're just like, I need one chord here or what? Or how does that, what does that end up meaning? I think it's like the title track and the amazing final track, I Know the End. Yeah, and Halloween. I feel like Halloween is right. the one he helped the heaviest with because... If you've ever had, like, as a journalist, if you've ever had, like, a great editor, it's like that feeling where you're like, oh, my God, I never thought of that. Or he, he'd, like, replace one word that was phonetically the same as what had been in the line before, but just, like, tied the entire song together somehow. Baby, it's Halloween. We- I think that's someone, something I've always been... It's been really fascinating being let into his writing process. I can read as many writing books and, you know, interviews with people who talk about their process as I want, but Connor's like one of the only people where I just 
like started writing with him and then adopted the way that he writes entirely. Like just literally, he has one page of lyrics next to the new page of lyrics. So like as he's making changes, he'll write completely different lyrics on the next page. And I, I did that for this whole record after making Better Oblivion. But but yeah, you're right. So I'd be like, ah, like I just want this one verse to be miserable. And he's like, well, you're, you're always talking about that Dodger Stadium murder. Like, why don't you write about that? It's great. It's like an editor. Driving out into the sun, let the ultraviolet cover me up. I did want to ask about I Know the End, which is the final track on the album. First, it builds into this glorious horn-driven thing that's just gorgeous and then it goes into this beautiful chaos that's a little bit like Day in the Life by the Beatles. It's definitely one of the most striking musical moments I've heard all year and maybe just explain how you wrote a song like that from start to finish. I think it was a concept first where I was like I want this record to end in screaming. And then there was this song that I had started writing with my ex-boyfriend who plays drums with me. We're like extremely codependent. Like, I feel like our relationship is very seminal to my whole adult life. Like I met him, I was super, super impressed when we met. Um, Met kind of in horrible circumstances and then became like inseparable musically. And yeah, I don't feel like stuff is finished until I show him. Um, But him and I... We're writing a song at the end of our romantic relationship that was just really sad. I was like, this almost doesn't have a place on the record because it's just like miserable. And then when I had the screaming idea kind of towards the end of the record, I was like, it's the outro to this super miserable song. It's going to be the outro. So really, it was the first song I started for this record and the last song I finished, which is kind of cool. Do you demo stuff like that out? Is there like some kind of scratch arrangement of that that you did on your own? I think there is. I think it's on this spire that didn't, isn't working right now. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, I definitely make demos, but they're pretty sad. Like for the most part, it's voice memos. I have thousands of voice memos because I also like the way they sound. It's weird. I don't know what they're doing, but they sound great. And But, it, but they're funny because I'm whispering uh, the my neighbor's. One time someone shouted through my open window, shut the fuck up. And so ever <laughs> since then, I've just like, it actually, it gets kind of weird because I'll, I'll, I'll write a song and then it'll be in a completely different key than something I can sing because I whispered the entire time when I was writing it. So yeah, I have a whispered, <laughs> I know the end. Do you then, is it all just singing? You, you don't sit there with your guitar? You're just whispering melodies into the voice memo? I have, it's mostly guitar. Like I do the equivalent of whispering with a guitar. Quietly finger picking yes. kind of thing. Yes. You physically write your lyrics, handwrite them in a, in a notebook, or were you being metaphorical as a yes. computer screen? Yeah, I, I have a hard time typing on a computer. Maybe it just doesn't make me feel cool. But I also, someone, one of my friends told me I I write my my cursive is like a like I'm writing letters home from the war in like the 1800s. Is like I just it's I write faster in cursive. Also my um, print. When I have to write print, it looks like an eight-year-old. The best answer I ever got to how do you physically write your lyrics was Robert Smith of The Cure who said, who claimed he wrote them on a wall in his house. 
Oh my god, that's uh, yeah, awesome. I have one of those behind uh, me. Are there, in fact, lyrics on there? There are definitely no lyrics. It says, like, pay UCLA bill, which would be a <laughs> shitty lyric. It's not inconceivable that that would be one of your lyrics, no. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> nope. It's gonna... Now it's gonna... Now, it ha- now I have to do it. <laughs> uh, just, like, I love specific writing um, so much. Now... Since you've had, you've traveled a bit, but you've had a lot of time at home like everyone else and you haven't gotten a tour, have you been writing new songs this year? Yeah, I have. There was like a Billie Eilish headline a couple months into quarantine that my drummer sent me that was like, it was like, Billie Eilish said she wrote one whole song in quarantine and it wasn't being facetious. It was just like, wow, she wrote a song and that's how I feel. I'm like, I probably wrote two whole songs and it's been three times as much time. I I was talking shit about myself, about how slow I am with writing. And then one of my friends was like, no, you're just deliberate. And, mm. and I actually agree with that. I was like, that's one thing that I can say about myself is that I don't, I definitely don't have any extra songs ever. And I kind of write in order. Like it has to be, I have to love the last line to move on to the next line. Uh, yeah, I do the same thing. And it's a good way to torture yourself, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, and... Are you thinking that you have the first two songs of your next album, or have you just written two songs that you don't know what they are? Kind of that. Because again, I have a lot of people who, before I show them the song and ask them what it is, I feel like it's not done. So yeah, so just because it's me, they feel like little, yeah, they're just like weird voice memos in my phone. Also, I have no concept, or that's not true, not no concept, but sometimes it'll really surprise me what people, what other people gravitate towards. Like I will have not even just being self-deprecating, but I will have actually convinced myself that I wrote something trash. And like I sent it to Marshall, my drummer on tour. And then he texted me like three weeks later being like, well, what was that incredible idea that you had? I'm like, really? You like that? I love that feeling. It's like you didn't even remember that you did work. Out of all songwriters, all bands, whose work do you know the best as a musician? Whose songs, and it could be multiple answers, but whose songs have you, can you like, what's the most number of songs that you can like sort of sing and play by other artists? Who, who, who did you really ab- absorb that way? Hmm, it probably used to be the Beatles, and then definitely Elliot Smith, and then Connor, for sure. Especially now being in a band, and he'll, you know, like right before we go on stage, he'll be like, can we play this old song? And I realize I'm like, yeah, totally. I mean, he, he must have been pretty flattered on some level. Oh, he's stoked. Don't let him tell you that he's not stoked that I have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bright Eyes catalog. Do you actually know it better than him? Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. But I like, I like the weird lyrics that he comes up with. It's always close. Like he'll change a lot of lyrics live. And I'm like, that's a crazy way to change that. And they'll be like way darker. The song Chinese Satellite, you've said that on some level, it's, it's about a lot of things. It's about the spirituality that, or lack thereof that you formed in the face of a lack of growing up with any. You also said it's about your actual, your real disappointment of not getting a Hogwarts letter when you were 11. But I, I actually, I think that that's a kind of universal feeling. There's that book and that became a TV show, The Magicians, that actually kind of digs into the adult version of the feeling of, of like, where's the anointment? When do I transcend the everyday? Where's the magic I was promised? I totally. just wonder if you could talk a little bit about those feelings. Yeah, it's funny. I had a crush on somebody who 
uh, made me read the magicians on a plane. I was like, this is like porny Harry Potter. This is sick. (laughs) I love those crushes where you like, you just want to talk to them about the things that they like. Those are great. But yeah, I think sometimes I catch myself being like, why didn't I get to believe in God ever? You know, why didn't I, even Santa, I was like, this is my mom. Like she never tried that hard to like, she went like above and beyond for Christmas. But she was always kind of like, wink, wink, it's Santa Claus is coming. And I was always kind of in on it. Like, I think the first time I was ever, like, heartbroken was when I didn't realize how much I was actually letting myself believe that I was going to get into Hogwarts. Secretly, in the back of my head. I was like, it's fake, it's fake, it's fake. But that was just protection. And I think that's what the whole song is about, is like, do I just not have faith in anything because I'm protecting myself? And... No, nothing is real. God is dead. But but yeah, but I still have, you know, all sorts of weird prayer candles and tarot cards. And like, I, I just want it so bad. Someone asked me if I believe in ghosts. And I'm like, I want it too bad to believe in ghosts. I want ghosts too badly for them to be real. Like they would never <laughs> appear to me because I'm the weirdo who'd be like, <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> I mean, in a way, becoming an artist is trying to manifest that magic, isn't it? Totally. And also, in the corniest possible way that you can mean something, it is magic. I think it's my subconscious talking to myself. Like, when I listened to a record from three years ago, I'm like, oh, that's... I had all the information that I needed about this situation, and I had no idea it was being, like moved through my brain. I think that's what tarot cards are too. You know, when you see a tarot card of a skeleton, you're like, clearly it's my ex speaking to me and I, and it's bad for me. It's like, it's just your own brain filling in what you already know and you haven't been able to admit yourself without help. Brother is named Jackson, which I believe was actor uh, Jackson Brown. And there was a lot of that kind of music in your house growing up. What of that sort of Laurel Canyon era, what, if anything, did you really respond to? I think I just responded to well definitely production and stuff i gravitated towards the emoist of the laurel canyon production which definitely was jackson brown for a while minus the 80s but i but i loved that too it was like oh these are emo songs but with like crazy 80s drums but yeah i think i just I, I, like, what even was popular at that time? Definitely a lot of, like, Radio Disney was on in the car, and then the records that were being played in my house were real, genuine lyrics about sadness and getting fucked over. And I know you, you know, you, you took guitar lessons, that was, and that was kind of your rebellion from piano lessons, and how did songwriting really start for you? I, I just, I really wanted to be a songwriter before... I wrote songs that were good. I like romanticized it. I think my first song was, was the chorus was, I'm the only bird flying the other way. And I'm a white (laughs) girl from Pasadena uh, in private school. So I don't think I was the only bird flying the other way, but yeah, I like romanticized it. And then, and then just at some point it got good. Um, I think a lot of people have these experiences where when I was a teenager writing songs, I would write a new song, and then the first song I'd written, the earliest song I'd written, dropped off. I was like, that's bad. So I was getting better really fast. Or I was like, oh, this song makes that song look horrible. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Have you thought about what it means to be a sort of guitar-based singer-songwriter in this era? And whether, would you rather be that now or in an era when that was the dead center mainstream of of music? I think about that, I was thinking about this yesterday for some reason, I think I was talking to Connor, but there's just some sort of longevity with making guitar-based music. like especially if you don't stick to a specific genre and you always write good songs, you have a chance to be like a John Prine character where his last record was one of his best-selling records. I think there will always be a place for it. And, you know, like Jackson Brown, a lot of his music sounds dated. Like you can say the exact year that something came out because of a drum sound, but because he's a great songwriter, it just, he transcends. And I know you recorded a, a pretty obscure Tom Petty song. Is uh, it'll all work out? Is he part of your pantheon? Definitely, I think Tom Petty is goals because he he's just such a great pop melody writer. And I think that a lot of people don't want to admit that that's their what they're going for or that that's what they do. Like Elliot, pop melody writer. And I think it's like undervalued when people talk about that stuff. And songwriting, it's like cheap or something, but I'm like, what is better than making something that's good and new? So yeah, definitely awesome. And what did Radiohead mean to you? Obsessed with Radiohead. I probably faked liking Radiohead. At fr- I didn't actually know that I did. I had, a, <laughs> I had a crush on a kid named Hunter in my class who loved Radiohead and faked it until I made it and just spent a whole summer. Like That's what's fun about being my age is that when or I guess any age with varying bands, but when you discover a band that the predominant bulk of their catalog is behind you, when you discover it, you just have this gift. You're like, oh, I just get to download all this into my brain and I don't have to wait for a new record. It would have been fun to see them and it would have been fun to be a part of that while it was happening, but it is such a treat to discover. Like Teenage Fan Club was like that for me, where I just go back and just get to be their newest super fan. That's a band that you'd read about in Spin a long time ago, and occasionally would be on college radio. I haven't heard someone say that name in like a decade. How did you get into Teenage Fan Club? I was into Teenage Fan Club when, like maybe my last year of high school, my friend Brian DeLeon, who who's awesome, liked all kind of the coolest music and was, again, was like, this is a pop band in an indie, you know, shell. And became obsessed with it, thought it was awesome. And then there was a one of my favorite records of theirs wasn't on streaming and it actually just got put on streaming. And then like two years ago we were tour bidding each other. So I saw them several times and it was just one of the most fun bands to watch and also they're like so sweet between songs, which I think is so badass. Like, instead of being shoegaze, they're like, you know, super Scottish. They're like, thank you so much, guys. 
This is so nice. Everybody's being so nice right now. I love that. <laughs> to you that's a that's a great song on the album icu is about marshall who i mentioned earlier who started the i know the end song with me very complex and very simple relationship to me but right when we first broke up i started writing that song just about how you know right when you break up with someone it's hard to hang out every day even if you're really close and now we do but it was hard for like the first year. Yeah, just like missing kind of some somebody that you were leaning on for so long. Like I, I leaned on him for everything. I don't think I like drove a car for like our, the entire two year relationship. And you know, he's like an engineer and he'd go on tour with me and just we did everything together. So then missing that was, I was like, did I make the biggest mistake ever? And then, and his mom voted for Donald Trump and we got in a huge fight. So that's, I blame that lyric on that. Uh, yeah, just about that regret feeling. Graceland 2 is an incredible song. It's just about caring about someone who does not care about themselves at all and how painful that is because you can't. Like, I often wish it was like Dune where you could, you know, communicate telepathically and someone could read your mind. But you can't, and you can't make somebody feel love for themselves, and you can't stop somebody from hurting themselves, really, unless you're, like, with them 24-7, which is horrible. If you're standing between somebody and, like, relapsing or self-harm or something, it's like, you can't you can't do that forever. They have to kind of stand on their own two feet, and I, I feel like I've been in that situation so many times. So it's, a, it's like a love song about that. And then Graceland 2, talk about Punishers, Graceland 2, The Place, is a Elvis superfan who turned his house into, like, Graceland 2. Although it's spelled T-O-O, which is amazing. So it's like Graceland also. And it's magical, although it's since torn down. So it gets to be a, a double reference, just like the Rebel Without a Cool line, which is, a, a, which is like Tom Petty... And I, which he stole from the replacement, exactly. so it's like perfect. It, yeah. Which is funny because my producer Tony Berg, who worked with the replacements, literally begged me not to put that in that song. Um, <laughs> Why? Because he was like, "It sucks. It sucks that Tom Petty stole it. Like, it's it's like putting salt in a wound." And I'm like, "Yeah, but if but if people think I'm stealing it from Tom Petty, then that's amazing because he deserves it." Is it weird to not be touring these songs? And to, I mean, you, you've gotten to do some really cool late night appearances and stuff, but does it feel like there's this empty spot where you should be playing these songs every night? Absolutely. I, I feel like my ego, like true ego death is not being on tour, putting out an album and not being on tour. Um, I didn't realize how much I relied on people screaming at me every night, but I do. It's just super weird. Like I feel, I feel like I don't exist. Um, which is best problems possible to have in 2020. And I'm also super grateful that I did anything, that I released this album, that I'm talking to you, that I get to like talk about something that I did because I feel like I truly wouldn't exist. <laughs> uh, late stage capitalism at its best. I, I feel like I don't exist unless I make stuff and get to talk about it. Mm. I mean, it is wild how prescient some of the album now seems. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, 
it feels like reflexive. I feel like it, it's a bad reflex. I keep when I talk to people about their albums, even if it's like a disco album, I find a reason to to say it's appropriate for right now. But this, I swear, this one really a lot of it emotionally and even sometimes very specifically lyrically feels like right now. And some of it hits different, you know, in in the wake of the pandemic. And I, I'm just curious how much some of your your general feelings about the world have been sort of amplified by what happened uh, since March. Yeah, I, Con- you know, Connor put out a record too and gets the exact same questions because, and he's like, I've been writing about the apocalypse since like the 90s. <laughs> but yeah, I feel the same way. It's like all my apathetic lyrics are more poignant now, but even just weird ones that had nothing to do with anything like wearing a mask and Halloween or being stuck inside and I know yeah it's cool I like that about art and I've been listening to music in a different way but yeah I like right when when it all started I think I wrote quarantine into a song and then in retrospect I'm like no dude no stop (laughs) like you're gonna have to stop being hyper specific because everybody's having the exact same experience did you try to rhyme it with something did I no thank god okay although I think there's like a fuck who was it Someone someone released a really horrible quarantine song. Maybe I'm glad that I can't remember who it is, so I'm not talking shit, but it's amazing. <laughs> I know you've been listening to the Fiona Apple record. What else have you, whether it's old or new, have you been drawn to since March or so in, in your own listening? I can actually pull up my Spotify. I've been listening to a lot of Cure, which is weird. I was listening to Big Star last night. I realized the similarities between uh, Glad Girls by Guided by Voices. Hey, Glad Girls! September Girls by Big Star. Aha. And I used to like both songs. And then after realizing that, I was like, fuck you, Got It By Voices. What else is on here? <laughs> Haunt by Daniel Johnston. The mm. terrifying, there's a terrifying song called Haunt. What's Kid Cudi's rock album? Oh, yeah. I was listening to that last night. Uh, Yeah, I'm getting weird. I feel like I forgot about music for so long, and I was just listening to podcasts for all of tour. Right. And then since this quarantine, I just, like, started liking music again. Maybe it's, yeah, because I wasn't on tour. But, yeah, it's uh, The Future by Leonard Cohen, another very poignant song now. Mm. What is it about chopping down the last tree and then stuffing it up the hole in your culture? That's cool. He also says anal sex in that song, which is hard. It's hard to rhyme with that. And I did want to ask about Kyoto, which is, I love that it started as a ballad and then you just felt you had too many ballads and you just manifested it into a, a super catchy sort of power pop song. Day off in Kyoto. So you can just do that on command if you want. If you want to write up tempo, that just I think I have people on payroll who can do that for me. Like Tony Berg, <laughs> my producer, was like, "This has got to be." He, he actually, you know, it's a gimmick now. I feel like there are some where we just can't. Like we try, and it sounds horrible. But because he knows I write only ballads at this point, he knows that the only reason to, or the only way to trick me into writing a pop song is to is to turn my ballads into pop songs. So is it as simple as speeding it up or <laughs> it can't be, right? Not really, because I was, the, the original version of that is kind of circular, like it's almost swung. And so it's trying to speed it up. I felt like I had like 
that was super dizzy. But yeah, those Ethan Gruska and Tony Burke are like musical geniuses, which I keep around me because I am not one. I write the song or, or all songs with like three chords and the same time signature. So, so yeah, they help. Actually, the voice memo at the beginning of that song, the sample, is us playing it sped up for the first time. Garden song, the instrumentation. How, how did you create that that sort of fractured sound? Like an iPad, literally. Um, Ethan has a bunch of weird iPad apps that uh, he just puts everything through. It's really cool. We use it a lot. On, we used a lot on the first record too, but but even more on this record. Huh. So it's just like it's like using an iPad app as like a pedal, basically, or something like. Is that, right. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a rubber bridge baritone acoustic guitar so already a weird guitar and then sampled chopped up put into ipad that if i hear radiohead directly in in your music that would be (laughs) that would be a place where where i heard it totally it's weird i mean i remember you saying that i know i'm never going to have a a pop song on the radio a, a pop hit on the radio i mean isn't it bad to be so sure? I mean, I, do you really? I don't think you really know that. Even "Guided by Voices" once almost had a hit. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that? S- sort of. <laughs> I mean, like not on like pop. Yeah. yeah, that's what would happen to me is like an accidental hit or like a Foster the People hit. Um, if that did happen to me, but <laughs> but I remember Aaron Desner from the National once was like, "You just gotta like not have any." Like the National definitely never did, and because of that. Their shows are full of people who know every song instead of like drunk people screaming one song. <laughs> well, see, that seems more to the point. It's almost like you don't want to because then it becomes that thing. That actually is, you know, the only band who ever escaped that band, Not a Surf, who did it in reverse. They had this song, Popular, which was this huge novelty hit and then became a credible, great indie band. It's so weird. It sounds nothing like them. Right. Popular. I love that band. Yeah. I feel like that's that's how you write pop songs to me, is like those very low-key, almost no production, not a surf songs. So it must be hard on that same note to sort of feel the momentum, like you said, and feel that you exist without like, or feel even like, how successful am I at this moment in this sort of isolated place you're in, right? That must be strange. And maybe it's good. I don't know. I think it is kind of good. It's nice. I'm like protected from everything. I used to feel so famous around my shows because you're, I always say you're never as famous as you are. Like the five blocks around the venue, right the day you play, you know, like if you ever want to feel famous, play a show and then go to the restaurant next door. So I just don't have like a distorted view anymore. And also getting recognized now is kind of fun. Like people like, you know, in there, you're like, oh, it really is just my hair. Wait, did you just say recognized? Yes, I said recognized. <laughs> yeah. I have not heard that one before. Did you? I love uh, it. Is that is that your own invention? No, I think I got it from the pop punk world. Actually, I think Chad Gilbert. We went to Disneyland once, and he was like, "Ah, oh, this is like recognized city because pop punk kids love Disneyland." I wanted to ask about before we wrap up. Will there be more better Oblivion Community Center? projects will there be more boy genius projects i hope so the ethos of both of those bands are it is really fun and uh i think the weird part especially owning a label now is like you know this contract it's it's at this time so this person has to be working on a solo record or whatever like it's just a lot of mental math but i hope that our kind of stars align 
at some point because yeah, I love both those bands so much and I feel like it makes my solo music better. What are your ambitions for the label? I want to stick to signing people who write good songs. I think it's easy for me to hear cool production and not like dig deeper, but I want to like truly be able to connect with people on lyrics, which is hard. And also like a lot of, that means a lot of different things. I definitely just don't want to sign people who sound exactly like me or who sound exactly like Connor or whatever. Like I'd love to kind of reach throughout genres. Basically sign stuff I feel really stoked on, not, not because I should or because it's cool. Are super happy artists allowed? Totally. Totally. I feel like, again, happiness is funny too. As funny as sadness. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, man. Yeah, this is fun. And that's our show for today. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. We are a podcast, of course. We're also on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to us. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you can. That's always particularly appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord, we get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.